Is your wallet a little lighter than usual after the holiday season? Consider it money well spent because you deserve to live your best life and the Chime checking account wants to help you live yours to the fullest. A little extra money goes a long way, which is why the Chime checking account has tons of benefits that millions of members love, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and access to over 60,000 easy-to-find and fee-free ATMs. You even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit, all while managing your money on the go, including sending and receiving money fee-free with friends that aren't even on Chime. Sign up for Chime today for you and your wallet. Get started at Chime.com Goals24. That's Chime.com Goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Trust, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Well, 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 dress listeners, it has been a bit since we have done a fashion history mystery based on listener requests. So a recent request from Effa Kenny reminded me that this was not the first ask for today's topic. Several listeners in the past, including at Winters Past Vintage, have also asked for more information on the American fashion brand Lily Ann. And I have to say, Cass, that when these requests initially came in, I didn't necessarily jump on the topic right away. Um, I did know at the time that Lillianne was a quote-unquote better American line of women's suits and outerwear, kind of from the 1950s onwards. And while I knew the clothes were really beautiful, if a bit trendy for the era, I wasn't exactly sure at the time if there was enough of an interesting backstory there to turn it into an entire episode. So today I'm happy to report back on that, and I'm also happy to report that boy was I wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, listeners, while I was in the final phases of my rabbit hole of researching Barbie's fashion history, April was in the trenches too. She was digging the way back out of her own rabbit hole researching the brand Lily Ann and also the person behind the brand who was not as one might assume Lily Ann nor a woman, um, but rather Adolf Schumann, who named the company after his wife, Lillian. And boy, oh boy, Cass, this guy was a real one. He was a stellar businessman. Uh, Harper's Bazaar once called him one of the most respected manufacturers in the country. Um, But at other times, he could be a little bit of a questionable character, I would say, as we will learn. (laughs) (laughs) So who was Adolf Schumann? Schumann was born in 1907. He was the son of a diamond dealer. But actually, little else is really publicly known about Schumann's childhood and education. However, we do know that by the early 1930s, he was already married to Lillian and working as a shipping clerk and an amateur boxer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He stated in the press that he didn't want his wife to kill herself with housework, so he took on boxing matches and used his $25 fee per match to pay for a housekeeper. And we're going to talk more about this boxing situation a little later in the episode. 
We will. Um, And Schumann entered the realm of fashion in, depending on the source, 1933 or 1934, when he borrowed $800, which would be about $19,000 today, as seed money to start his fashion brand. And while later in his life, he would claim that this loan came from a bank. However, quite a lot of articles from the 1940s specifically note that the loan was from a friend whose name was Rudolf Kuch, who worked as a laundry delivery man. And this is where I start to have some questions, Cass. I mean, (laughs) doesn't it kind of seem like a lot of money, $19,000 for a delivery guy to just kind of have on hand to loan to a friend? Um, And when you couple this with the fact that he was participating in the amateur boxing world, which we do know involved gambling, I have some suspicions that Schumann might have had some mob connections, and this is actually where the money came from, just saying. Which reminds me of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's last season, (laughs) just saying. (laughs) So quite possible, right? And of course, we cannot say this for certain, but we do know that the mob had a long history of being involved with labor unions, including labor unions related to the fashion trades, so much so that the New York mob actually had a set fee scale for their intimidation tactics that were meant to keep garment workers and manufacturers in check so that the mob, you know, could continue to profit off of the garment industry. For instance, in the 1920s and 30s, hiring the mob to quote unquote mess up a small garment factory would cost you about $150, whereas a large one would be four times that. So like $600. Also knocking out a person of quote unquote average importance would cost you about $200. This was also the same price as breaking a victim's arm or fingers. I mean, I can't believe that this was actually like a fee schedule. Um, There were also higher rates for more grisly tactics employed um, to keep the fashion industry under the mob's thumb. But we're not going to delve any further into this as we've already veered off topic a bit. But, you know, I just want to say that this is entirely conjecture on my part that the initial seed money for the founding of Lillian might have been a loan from the mob um, because sometimes you just have hunches, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and I have a feeling that we're going to get a couple listener requests about doing an episode just on this, that very topic, Um, but we digress. Uh, April, I do have a few questions though because we know that he went from, Adolf went from a shipping clerk to a garment manufacturer, but what exactly was his background or training in fashion? Um, that is an excellent question and one that I cannot honestly answer. It's kind of like a missing piece of the puzzle. Usually we know that a designer kind of grew up in a family that was in the fashion trades or perhaps they went to art and design school, but we know next to nothing about Schumann's ties to fashion when he first launched Lillianne. Here's what we do know. Um, We know that by 1934, he had set the brand up in San Francisco's Chinatown in a two-room atelier where he employed six Chinese seamstresses. And that is precisely what the primary sources um, in the fashion press tell us at the time, that they were Chinese. It's unclear if perhaps they were Chinese-American. Um, Schumann himself was not the designer. Rather, uh, the creations of Lillianne were the designs of Jean Miller, who initially served as the model for the fledgling fashion line. 
Schumann states that these early years, the late 30s of the business, were difficult. They were barely scraping by. They were primarily selling to small boutiques on the West Coast who appreciated the quality of their small rent offerings. And Schumann, it must be said, was a stickler for quality, particularly when it came to the fabrics used for Lillian suits and coats, which while well-made from a design perspective, they were not necessarily reinventing the wheel. (laughs) So... They stuck close to the popular silhouettes and color palettes of the day and oftentimes were inspired by trends set by the French fashion industry. But one might even describe Lily Ann's designs as exaggerated versions of Paris trends. So you have like the nipped waist of a Lily Ann suit might just be a tad tighter and the color selected for a coat a little bit brighter. And if the fashion brand Lily Ann were brought to life as a woman, let's just say... An apt career for her would be that of a sassy showgirl. (laughs) And that also goes for the brand's owner, who was a bit of a showman himself. Yeah, Cass, because by the 1940s, Schumann and the brand Lillianne had become major players on the West Coast fashion scene. In an article from later on in his life, a colleague in the San Francisco fashion scene remarked of Schumann at this time in the 1940s, quote, Anyone who is someone in the city's apparel industry has a story about Adolf Schumann and apparently had a very larger-than-life personality, and that really only grew his reputation in conjunction with some of the unorthodox tactics that he took within the trade. Um, Some of them are detailed on a lot of these articles, but one of my favorites is that he liked to test new designs before they went into mass production, and to do so, he would send a model to a bar wearing that new design. And if a man didn't pick her up in the first 10 minutes, the design was canceled, scrapped, and it didn't go into production. So this is kind of what I was meaning about Lillian garments. You know, Schumann really wanted them to be these attention-grabbing statement pieces. And speaking of attention, we also have to remember that the 1940s was also a major moment for American fashion in general. This is World War II, mind you, and Americans were cut off from the influence of Paris fashion due to the Nazi occupation of Paris. And this allowed American fashion designers to step into the spotlight in a way that they had not been able to previously. I mean, France had had a very strong grip on the American fashion industry for decades. So during World War II, American fashion journalists and retailers alike turned their attentions to homegrown talents. And it's in the mid-1940s that we see Lillianne really begin to be widely covered in the fashion press. And perhaps this is the result of Schumann's courting of Hollywood. And listeners, this was not the usual scenario where, say, a fashion designer sought publicity by dressing popular actresses. Schumann actually envisioned something much grander. He put Lillianne on the silver screen. So not by costuming films, but by setting up promotions with movie theaters. So, for instance, he partnered with Columbia Pictures to film Lillianne's November 1944 fashion show that was held in Los Angeles. And then that fashion show was screened as a trailer in the spring of 1945 in almost 6,000 movie theaters across the U.S. And it seems that Schumann's publicity gambit paid off, sales skyrocketed, and it was now necessary to expand manufacturing operations to Los Angeles to keep up with the new demand. But along with that success came a whole new set of concerns. Lillianne had become a household name, and with that came the copyists. 
Yes, you heard me right. (laughs) A tale as old as time. Um, You know, this culture of ready-to-wear manufacturers copying other houses' design work was so rampant in the American fashion industry at this time that it was almost normalized. Normalized, but not entirely legal. In 1946, Lillian was involved in at least one lawsuit, which they brought against manufacturers and retailers engaging in design piracy. And the lawsuit claimed that copies of Lillian's coats and suits were being knowingly sold as Lillian originals across the U.S., Needless to say, Lillianne was in demand, and so much so that the company was now struggling to keep up with orders. So there's an article about the brand in Life magazine in 1948 resulted in the company selling completely out of their stock in two days. And in 1951, Lillianne significantly doubled its Los Angeles manufacturing operations yet again, and despite employees working 48-hour weeks, the company was often forced to turn away orders as they simply could not produce their quality garments at such a pace. But if the business struggled financially in the late 1930s, its struggle in the late 1940s and early 1950s was actually bringing their manufacturing capabilities to scale. And this wild success of the Lillian brand was quite public. Perhaps this is what garnered the attention of U.S. government officials, who in 1948 tapped Schumann to be an official emissary for the American fashion industry as part of the U.S. government's Economic Recovery Act, which is more popularly now referred to as the Marshall Plan. So essentially, the Marshall Plan was an international diplomatic initiative to assist the countries of Europe in economic recovery in the post-World War II period. And Schumann's role in this initiative was to engage with European textile manufacturers to act as a consultant in streamlining their production methods, but also to commission and promote European textiles within the American fashion industry which is something at which he excelled. He threw himself into this project with all of his considerable charisma. He actually worked with smaller textile mills, and many of which had been operating the same way for generations. And he, as reported in Cosmopolitan magazine in 1957, quote, showed the French management how to increase output by using modern methods of production, merchandising, and distributions. And prices fell from $47 per yard to $7. Wages rose from $0.47 cents per hour to $0.75 cents per hour. And this last point was actually something he was really a stickler for. When the implementation of his methods led to the owner's increase in profits, he demanded that the money also filter down to the workers, saying, quote, what you pay according to what a man produces shows in the results. One other bold move Schumann made was not part of the marginal plan per se, but on the part of his own interest, Lillianne. The demand for Lillianne's offerings now being what it was, he had some massive purchasing power and he put it to use. So many of these small mills that he consulted with in France and Italy had been running on a system of producing small seasonal runs of multiple textiles for the haute couture industry. And, you know, obviously producing multiple designs for short periods of time meant reconfiguring the looms again and again. So conversely, producing a large amount of a single textile is a lot more efficient in terms of labor and prep work. And given the scale of Lillianne's manufacturing operations at this point, Schumann was able to offer these smaller mills substantial commissions for larger runs of fabrics. 
1957, an article notes that he was spending a whopping $2 million a year on French fabrics alone, Cass. That would be the equivalent of about $21 million today. Um, and also a really interesting fact is that from one French mill, he was able to commission 33 miles of a single textile motif. And, wow. and I, yeah, <laughs> I know. I, I think this really puts into perspective the massive popularity um, of the Lillian brand. We're going to take a short sponsor break here, but more on Lillian and the fashion press when we come back. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Welcome back. So listeners, by now we have well established that the Lillian brand was hot by the early 1950s. But what we haven't mentioned yet is that this was in large part thanks to Schumann's robust advertising campaigns. So if the 1940s saw Lillian advertised on the silver screen, in the 1950s it was in the pages of high-end fashion magazines. 1950s issues of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar are full of Lillian ads. And if you think that Schumann was a stickler for quality in his garments, he was no less so with his advertising. So many of Lillian's campaigns were shot by leading and now legendary fashion photographers of the era, including Richard Avedon. Yeah, Cass, some of these ads are super stunning and stop you in your tracks when you're flipping through the magazines. And I suppose this is entirely the point, right? <laughs> to grab the viewer's attention. It is advertising after all. Um, so these are really successful ads. And um, I just want to describe one particular Avedon shop campaign that ran in 1951. It features one of the greatest supermodels of the era, Dorian Lee, and she is wearing a tailored double-breasted white suit. The waist cannot be more nipped. It's very tight, and this is accentuated by the fact that the jacket has this little ruffled peplum at the hips, um, and the edges of this white suit on the peplum at the center front line where it closes and also the lapels, these are all trimmed with black piping, so it's a very like contrasting situation. Uh, the black piping is also at the upturned cuff, um, the, and, the, and the sleeves of the jacket are bracelet length. So she's wearing long black gloves. She's carrying a very smart umbrella that has like a zipper cover on the umbrella itself in the crook of her arm. And of course, 
No outfit of this time, this is the 1950s, would be complete without a hat. So she is wearing a very small black toque by one of the top milliners of the day, Mr. John. So per usual, Adolf Schumann demanded everything be the very best. And it must be said, Lillian garments were some of the best of American ready-to-wear for a very specific price point. So this suit April just described actually retailed at Saks Fifth Avenue for $90, which would be a little over $1,000 today. Conversely, a couture suit from the likes of Dior or Jacques Faf, for instance, at this same time would run five times as much, around $6,000. But a $1,000 ready-to-wear suit versus a $6,000 couture model proved to be the sweet spot for American women, apparently. In 1957, Lillian brought in the equivalent of $160 million today, of which more than $2.5 million was spent on advertising. And it shows. Yes. (laughs) The mid-1950s saw the fashion industry recognize Schumann's business acumen with award after award in the U.S., but most notably were the awards that he garnered from France. So remember that stint that he had done working abroad as part of the Marshall Plan back in the 1940s? Well, as it turns out, the programs that he helped implement in France Britain and Italy were runaway successes. And after a few years, the small mills that launched some of his methods um, and in terms of like streamlining production and distribution, they were now able to switch from seasonal production models to year-round production models. And some of these regions in France, which had employed formerly of like around 1,500 textile workers, now boomed to employ more than 25,000 workers. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And the fashion press in America, France, and Italy all credited the massive booms for these mills directly to Schumann's consultations. In 1954, the French government even cemented their appreciation with one of the country's greatest honors. He was given the Légion d'honneur award for his assistance in growing French industry and the subsequent blossoming of international trade. In October of 1954, Vogue published an article on the occasion noting that Schumann was, quote, the first American manufacturer ever to be given this award, end quote. And while the fashion press lauded Schumann's finesse in the realm of operations, not all press was good press. Nope. <laughs> Listeners, remember when I said at the top of this episode that we would come back to that little bit about boxing? I mean, it seems that Adolf Schumann was good at business, but maybe he wasn't the best at, well, being a good boss. Yeah. So uh, Cass, you um, mentioned briefly that 1957 Cosmopolitan article. Um, It's actually this rather lengthy piece. It's a four-page spread on Schumann entitled The American Fashion Expert Who Saved a French Industry. Um, And it was in part an interview conducted in Paris while Schumann was staying at the Georges V, which was one of the ritziest hotels in the world and continues to be. It's now known as the Ritz-Carlton in Paris's Place Vendôme. But the article details his work in France, but it also at the same time doesn't necessarily paint the most flattering picture of Schumann as a human being. Quote, now 47, Schumann has never forgotten his days as a boxer and is still ready and willing to back up his opinions with his fists, end quote. Schumann then relates to the journalist a story of getting into a very recent fight with mob gangsters in a New York nightclub and goes on to brag of waking up with two black eyes. 
Yeah, this article's author really doesn't hold back. The article continues, quote, Schumann thrives on violence and a life of calm holds no appeal for him. Happiest in times of crisis, he is inclined to stir something up if no excitement is imminent. He is given to sudden rages, which are just as quickly over, although his business associates sometimes remain shaken for hours. Adolf forgets his indignation instantly. He says he has a medical curiosity because his low pulse rate, low blood pressure, and low thyroid output offer no clue to his excess energy. He also actually in this article goes on to claim he only eats 400 calories a day, which is not sustainable, and works 18 hours a day for months at a time, claiming to require hardly any sleep. So not the healthiest individual, I would say. I'm just going to go ding, 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 because there's so many red flags here, if not full stop signs. (laughs) Um, this This is concerning. Another curious quote from Schumann from this article actually has something to do with what I would say is a positive outcome of his career. And that was his recognized success in streamlining production methods for dozens of textile mills in Europe. However, when an advertising agency suggested that he promote this achievement, he responded, quote, who cares about that? Our customers don't. Let's sell them on glamour. Tell them our clothes are made at the top of Mamatra out of moonbeams and cobwebs. Say the designer cut her hands off at the wrist so that the creations would never be duplicated. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sounds like Adolf might have had a drink or two before his interview. <laughs> or, or, the journalist was, yeah, or the journalist was not happy with Schumann for various reasons. Uh, this is very interesting to me. So while Adolf seemed to be a handful, his business dealings did not seem to suffer. In 1958, he launched a fashion venture in France known as Baron Philippe, which exported high-end ready-to-wear to the European and African markets. In 1960, he launched a sportswear separates line known as Lillian Couture, as well as an at-home wear line known as Lillian Boutique. And in 1965, Lillian launched lines for both petite and tall women, And in 1966, Schumann launched a more affordable line known as Paris Sophisticates. And an interesting fact about his Paris Sophisticates line cast, it was actually manufactured in Puerto Rico in two garment factories that were able to turn out the demand for 25,000 coats per week. So coming in at what would be about $300 in terms of a price point today, um, this meant that he had the potential of pulling in about $7.5 million a week in sales with this Paris Sophisticates line alone. Um, And I have to say, I was really surprised at a lot of these numbers casts um, of what Lillianne and its spinoffs were pulling in financially. All of this was reported on widely in Women's Wear Daily. Um, And also surprising what they were spending, too, because um, in the 1970s, Harper's Bazaar uh, reported in a little bit of a blurb on Lillian that the company had spent a total of $12 million on advertising in the pages of Harper's Bazaar alone. So this just underscores that there was a lot of money to be made in the fashion industry at this time. Yeah, and this only continued into the 1980s. 
the brand now being just shy of 50 years old in 1982, Lily Ann did more than $124 million in business in today's dollars. And this sum was cited in Adolf Schumann's obituary in 1985. He had passed away suddenly at his office in New York after suffering a heart attack. He was just 77 years old. He had actually divorced Lillian in 1975 and remarried one of the firm's designers, and the company even attempted to carry on under his widow, Joe Schumann's, direction. Alas, there was a 50% drop in sales in the years following his death, and by 1995, the company announced they would be shuttering their doors. However, there was a campaign to save Lillian by the company's workforce, which garnered the attention of the press, and several investors made offers to buy the company in order to rescue the still San Francisco-based business. Ultimately, the winning bid went to Randy Allen, who told Women's Wear Daily at the time, quote, I couldn't help but react to what these workers were going through. I was well aware of the Lillian history and the Adolf Schumann legend. It would have been tragic for San Francisco to lose this tradition, end quote. And while it seems, um, according to the article, that the initial plan was to relaunch the business under Allen's ownership in October of 1995, actually, Cass, that's it. The tale and the trail of Lillian in the press end rather abruptly right there in July of 1995. There is not a peep about the fate of the company after the state. But that is not to say that the public's love affair with Lillian ended there because there still remains a substantial fan base. And this is, of course, attested to by all of your requests for this episode, but also the fact that the brand is very much a favorite of vintage collectors around the world. And the prices of Lillian garments actually command quite a high price on today's market. In many cases, they command more money than what the garment would have originally sold for. Mm -hmm. So for instance, one Lily Ann suit, which appeared in advertising campaigns in the 1950s, is listed for $1,800 on Etsy currently, nearly double the original $1,000 price tag. And this is, of course, adjusted for inflation. Yes. So for you Lily Ann fans and collectors out there, we hope that this little peek into the brand's backstory has satisfied a bit of your curiosity. And I thought this was a really interesting little romp into the history of a mainstream fashion brand cast. You know, there's lots of information about not just Schumann, who seems to have been a very successful enfant terrible of the American fashion scene, <laughs> um, but also the amount of money that was being made by American manufacturers at this time, you know, and that's not even to mention Schumann's work with textile mills in Europe as part of the Marshall Plan. So I just want to say, you never know what you're going to find out once you start pulling on all these threads. And on that note, I think that does it for us today, Trust listeners. May you consider the legacy of American fashion residing in your closet next time you get dressed. If you have your own burning fashion history mystery, please send it our way. We will try to do many, many more of these. Um, and you can do so by emailing us at hello at dressedhistory.com or sending us a DM at dress underscore podcast. And this, of course, is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Our website is dressedhistory.com. And if you want to find images to accompany this week's FHM, you can look for dressed FHM hashtag dressed FHM 60. That's hashtag dressed FHM 60. Did you know that you can now listen to Dressed ad free? For just $3 a month, you can skip the ads and you can do so by signing up for our exclusive content via the link in our show notes, also the link tree on our Instagram, or there's also a button on our website. 
Thank you as always for tuning in and more Dressed coming your way on Tuesday. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media. Thank you.